Welcome to the CDM Media Solution Spotlight Podcast. I'm your host, JD Miller, and we have a great show for you today. We're gonna to dive into the auto industry around supply chain resilience and what auto suppliers can do to increase their resilience. The pandemic has caused a lot of issues for many industries. Automotive suppliers will have many challenges of their own, including how the microchip supply chain impacted car production or what it was like to move production around the globe based on public health restrictions. Joining us after the break is Peter Mythel, Industry and Solutions Strategy Director for Automotive at Infor, along with Doug Bellin, Business Development, Industry 4.0 and Smart Factory at AWS. When we come back, Peter and Doug. three key areas where automotive suppliers can focus to achieve supply chain resilience, visibility, collaboration, and transparency. I want to tackle all of this, and we have the experts with us. Peter and Doug, welcome to the show. Thank you, JD. Happy to be here. Thank you. Looking forward to the conversation. Peter, I want to start with you. Why is supply chain resilience an important topic for the auto industry? Sure, that's a great question. And I think... um, the recent events of 2020, and as you said, even the uh, on the ongoing impact of that, like the microchip shortage, right, has really, I think, highlighted to uh, those of us in the industry that uh, you know there is a lot of vulnerability and risk in the automotive supply chain. And I think for too long, as an industry, we've taken it for granted that everything's going to work every time in exactly the way that it's supposed to work. And clearly, that's not the case because when you think about it. The automotive supply chain is global, so it's geographically dispersed. It's the auto industry runs on the principle of just-in-time or JIT and lean. So everything is really, I mean, perfectly synchronized and in, in sync so that there is almost no room for, there's no give, if you will, right? There's, so if something gets out of whack, the whole thing kind of gets massively out of whack. And you can consider, it's called the bullwhip, bullwhip effect, where a little... Uh, impact somewhere in the supply chain has a much more magnified effect as you go downstream or upstream, depending on how you look at it. But um, so I think that's really um, brought home. This has really brought home to us the fact that we need to build in more resilience to be able to weather the storms of the future better. I mean, at the end of the day, we've come through it fairly well, all things considered. But, um, but yeah, there's, there's some lessons to be learned in that uh, area. Doug, I, I want to go to you. What are some things that auto companies should do to increase supply chain resilience? And what would be the impact of not doing that? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things to look at here. And, and part of it is potentially learning from other industries. I know auto suppliers don't like to do that. And they say, well, we're different and we're unique. And we have these different things that are, are unique to our market and our supply chain in that aspect. But that's also kind of looking at with you know blinders on. And I think if you start to look at this outside of what are some best practices that others have done, and you look at experiences that have happened over the past 20 years in other supply chains, you know, we talk about right now the microchip problem that auto vendors are having and they're they're slowing down or stopping production because there's not enough production of those chips that need to go in every vehicles. And it's going to get worse the next 10 years with more chips coming in and more compute and more things happening on the vehicle in the edge standpoint. 
Well, let's look back in the mid 2000s, early, you know, 2005, 2008 timeframe when there was a flood in Thailand. And basically everybody looked and said, uh oh, I can't get memory chips for my PC industry. Well, there was supply that you had to look at. And now you had to start looking at where else could things be placed or what was your second or your third or your fourth option to be able to have those capacities and capabilities looking in place and building new and different scenarios around what could happen. I don't think anybody uh, would probably be predicting a pandemic and a shortage of cars, which then said, I'm not going to order these. So I'm not going to have as much on my, on my, my plates going forward. But that's the type of planning we need to be able to go into is very quickly to be able to say, what are those 15,000 computations with 12 different inputs and output variables to be able to understand what could happen? Um, and hopefully that what if of what is happening as they start moving forward as well. I think the impact is getting better visibility. So looking at how that JIT, that just-in-time, that lean is being affected with the 12 different variables and even compounding sometimes saying step one and step two might happen, what's going to happen at that point then? Peter, we, we mentioned earlier, visibility, collaboration, transparency. It makes so much sense, yet why are they apparently so hard to achieve and what can companies do about it? Sure, so actually um, I think the, and, and Doug just touched on it in, in what he just said, uh, but uh, the, the biggest issue that I see in the auto industry is one of culture, really, when you think about it. The auto industry tends to be somewhat, maybe the word is insular, uh, and also within the industry itself, there's not a whole lot of trust between the players. Uh, the OEMs, don't trust the uh, suppliers and the suppliers don't trust the OEMs. And it's this almost confrontational uh, approach that has been the norm for a very long time. Now, I think that is changing as a result of COVID. So if you want to look at a bright spot as a result of this black swan event, if you want to call it, I, I think it is. Um, uh, and I think that the uh, automakers have realized that we're all in this together. We've got to sink or swim you know, together. So, so culture change is a very big part of it. Another um, challenge to achieving transparency is the fact that, you know, the auto supply chain runs many tiers deep, right? The, and so, especially at some of the lower tiers, uh, there are smaller companies which don't necessarily have all the data or there's many of them are still using Excel and phone calls and handwritten, I mean, and phone, you know, um, email. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of data that's out there that is not able to be easily gathered. There's not a lot of, uh, uh, maybe well-connected IT systems. So there's a technology challenge as well, especially as you go lower in the tiers. So uh, those are two aspects that, that definitely make it difficult to really get a complete view end-to-end -end into the supply chain, right? And everyone's on their own system. There's no common platforms, things like that. Now, what can they do about it? Well, there are three things that I think can be addressed uh, that need to be addressed. One is, to increase trust. And as I mentioned, of course, that there is not a lot of trust right now. So it's very important to increase that trust. And that is a culture change, as I mentioned. But from a technology perspective, too, I think making sure that as companies start to collaborate, the data is secure, their ID, the identity and access controls are tight, um, that you've got sort of this, this secure by design philosophy, if you will, because it's very hard to achieve trust but it's very easy to lose it quickly with one breach into the network and somebody's data gets compromised. 
there goes your trust, right? So that's one piece. Secondly, I think from a technology perspective, um, the, the more people can get onto common platforms, what we call multi-enterprise platforms, then everyone's looking at the same data and pretty much the, at pretty much the same time can, you know, near real time can make decisions um, very much more effectively. And then last but not least, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the biggest change has to come from the top by leadership driving the culture change. And I think those are three things. So, you know, making sure that you've got the controls, you've got the multi-enterprise platforms and your leadership is driving the culture change to one of greater trust and collaboration. That's a great point. And, and Doug, I, I've got a, I got a loaded question for you. So really what would streamlined collaboration look like in a perfect world? And how can we use technology to enable that uh, and then at the same point, what are some barriers to this and, and how can those be reduced or eliminated? Like I said, loaded question. It is a loaded question. I think there's a, a couple of good examples of starting to happen already in the marketplace. Um, you know, two years ago, right around this time frame, right around April timeframe, um, Amazon, AWS and Volkswagen made an announcement around what they were calling the DPP, the digital production platform. And the goal of the digital production platform was twofold. The first fold of the digital production platform is getting all of the data within the factory four walls across 133 sites into a single platform. So sometimes you have to take care of your issues before you start going to your supply chain and saying, hey, fix this, because the fingers might come back and point to you and the issue might become your problem, not the problem downstream. So Volkswagen said, what we're going to do is get all of that information into one platform and start understanding what we have. But then also what we want to be able to do is do the same thing to our 30,000 suppliers globally. How do we get that information now into that single instance to allow that if I see a machine going down at a supplier at a tier two or a tier three, which probably has very minimal direct input into what my car is going to look like. But if they're having an issue and suddenly they can't produce a product, well, that's going to supply to a tier one maybe a tier two supplier, which is going to affect me as I start to move forward. So automated collaboration of issues as quick as possible and not use it as a carrot. I mean, I'm sorry, not use it as a stick, but use it as a carrot. Because in the past it was, oh, you're late. Let me beat this down on you and give you fines and charges. Not, uh-oh, we see an issue starting to occur. What can we do to help solve it? And again, that's a cultural change. It's no longer just saying, give me the information because I am your number one supplier and you have to do this because I'm telling you to. Now it's, if you share that information with me, what we're gonna help you do because you may not have a big technology department. You don't have an IT department. You don't have a huge budget, but if I can help you solve those capabilities. And that's where DPP is moving towards with, with an a, a, a adjacent area of DPP called the IC, which is the, industrial cloud. And the industrial cloud is a way that Volkswagen is looking at that data and saying, hey, what we're going to do is put onto here things like applications or best practices or guides to follow. So instead of having to start building it on your own and doing it on your own every time, it's a sharing capability that says, we've seen this problem. This is how we solved it. If you see this problem, this is how you're, you should solve it to help you get back into the best areas, the best capabilities moving forward. And I think that that looking at that barrier, again, not as a penalty, 
but it, how do you build it to be a win-win for everybody is really the big change internally from the culture as we move forward. What is the role of trust in achieving resilience? I mean, why does it matter and, and can it even be measured? Trust is really, I would say, foundational to achieving resilience. Um, because, you know, we've certainly talked about some of the, I've talked about some of the technology aspects as well and the culture change and all those are vitally important. But if we don't, if the players in the quote unquote ecosystem, if you will, don't trust each other, um, it's going to make it very hard to, to sort of collaborate and work together. Now, when you, when you think about resilience and what is resilience when you think about it, it's the ability to quickly respond the way I look at it is resilience is the ability to respond quickly to changing circumstances because there's always going to be circumstances. So we need to know, people need to know that we've got each other's back, right? If I know you've got my back and vice versa, then we can work together to address the situation instead of maybe watching out, watching each other and missing what we really need to focus on, right? So trust is really foundational. And because without trust, you have no collaboration, you have no visibility and no resilience. It's kind of like this continuum. Um, and, and Doug actually uh, mentioned something which is very important too, that, you know, I think it's very important for people to understand that if they trust, if they become vulnerable, if you will, to each other and share information and, and, and work and, and change their way of working, they need to feel safe that that will not be used against them. So just as Doug said, you know, if there's an issue and I as a supplier need to communicate that to you, I need to feel confident that you're going to help me resolve the issue. We're going to work together instead of just beating me down and penalizing me and, and just making it like, it's your problem, go figure it out, right? So, so I think that's a very important part of it is, is uh, you know, making sure that people understand that it won't be used against them. Now, how can you actually measure it? So, so hopefully that, that talks about, a little, that addressed the, the question about why does it matter, right? And then you asked the question about how can it be measured? Well, it is an intangible thing. So no matter what we do and whatever scoring metric we come up with, at the end of the day, trust is an intangible thing. But there are some ways to measure it. I mean, of course, there are surveys. There is social sentiment monitoring, right? I mean, that's, that's a relatively new thing in the age of social media in the last maybe, what, 10 years. Um, there are questionnaires. There, there's, there's quality feedback. I mean, there are some of these things. But, you know, I wish I could tell you there's a, a hard metric. There really isn't. Uh, but there are ways to gauge it and gauge the sentiment, i.e. trust, if you will. Doug, let, let, let's talk about the role of data in achieving resilience and making sense of the boatload of data we all seem to be drowning in. What are some of the typical challenges in achieving a data-driven supply network? Yeah, I think part of it also has to do a little bit with the historic, again, going back to the culture of the industry. Um, typical auto manufacturers, we're going to make a bunch of cars. People are going to buy them. They don't say, hopefully, they say people are going to buy them, full stop. Well, that doesn't always happen. What happens if you're not making the right vehicle, the right color, the right area, you ship it to the wrong location and those type of things from that standpoint. And what we see is that, that data helps um, not just be driving in the rear room mirror, you know, data is great because it's historical information. We can see what happened, how it happened, but it also is a precursor to action moving forward. So can we actually use the data that exists? Maybe it's purchasing data. Maybe we can understand what people are buying and how they're buying it, where they're buying it, the trends that they're moving towards. Take actually what Peter said of things like social media into there and say, ooh, the hot color next year is going to be X. 
And how are we going to put that on the vehicle? Or how can we allow you to potentially even change your buying habit that says, I want to be able to have my custom color built for me as we start to move forward. Now that's hard to predict, but I think people are willing to wait for a week or two or a month or six months to be able to have that custom color of their car versus I just want blue type of capabilities. So if we look at what what Amazon does. And Amazon, yes, it's not the auto industry, but the volume of data that we look at on a daily basis is probably more purchases than happens in the automobile industry in a day, you know, in a year type of concept. So we're looking at hundreds of millions of orders in a day going through Amazon. You're probably looking at, you know, tens of millions of vehicles in a year going through from that standpoint. But think of all of that data of sales information and understanding uh, profiling of your customer. So what is the age, the affluency, the neighborhoods they live in, the uh, you know other buying patterns that they now have with that and taking that information and automatically building that profiling system, but also automatically, you know what, Doug bought this vehicle four years ago. Other people who bought this vehicle who are similar to Doug bought this type of vehicle after a five-year time frame. Well, that tells me there's probably a precursor that if I can actually target market that person, understand what they're going to purchase, I'm not going to make a car now for a year down the road when Doug might be purchasing it, but I probably want to make a car in nine months to place it there in Doug's neighborhood or close to him. So when he makes that order and he's one of those buyers who wants to drive home with that perfect car, he can do that within a day or two or that hour type of capability. So a lot of it is taking that data and automatically helping make sense of it from the questions that you're asking. That then starts to fill backwards your supply chain. Um, when Amazon looks at our supply chain, we look at a end-to-end demand-driven supply chain. In other words, if we can understand what you, the consumer, is going to demand, Okay, we call it a purchase, we don't call it a demand. Um, But when you're making that purchase, you're demanding a product to be shipped. We're nicer than that, we don't say demand. Yes, you made the purchase. We make the promise that we will get it to you in 24 hours. Well, for us to do that, we had to understand that you might make that purchase. And what we do is then look, how many weeks is it gonna take to get from production to that location? And where should that location be so we can get it to you in that promised 24, 48 hour timeframe? Well, that demand signal also has to go to our suppliers. So are you buying a TV, a kayak, a canoe, a couch, a book, a CD, chips, whatever you're buying from that standpoint, we need to go to the the people who make that and work with their supply chain backwards to say, okay, it's going to take us three months to get it. It's going to take you two months. So that means we need to make that order five months to make sure that Doug, five months from now is going to make that order and we can produce it and not produce it, but ship it for him quickly. And that's a different mindset that has to kind of also change, but it's a demand-driven mindset. Great point. Peter, we're we're talking about the significant changes to traditional ways of doing business in automotive. What are the implications of this? And what should companies know or do to ensure adoption of new practices? Sure. So um, actually... You know, when you think about the changes, right? I mean, yeah, we're talking about supply chain here today, but Doug was touching on it a second ago here. Really, the entire way the automotive industry is going to, is is operating and and you're going to market and it's completely changing, right? So it's not just about selling a car, it's about the entire customer experience, of course. And, and, you know, everyone talks about the Amazon effect, right? Because Amazon has really 
kind of maybe ruin things or maybe improve things for everybody else, depending on how you look at it, because there's a certain expectation and it's all around the experience. So, so there is a major change in the way that the auto industry is doing business. And of course, Doug talked about the predictive, using data and predicting and, and uh, demand driven and so on. But really, when you talk about changing the ways of doing business, right, in any industry, I mean, at the end of the day, we're all human beings and as we're creatures of habit, right? And we resist change, that's just natural. So, you know, whether it's, whatever the degree of change is, I mean, whatever the type of change, when it's large scale change like this, the first thing is that you need to have strong executive sponsorship and, uh, and it needs to be driven from the top. This sort of change, uh, which is basically industry-wide, is not a grassroots thing. It needs to be driven from the top. Of course, you need grassroots adoption. And the way you get to that is to have A, the sponsorship, and then B, a strong change management program where people can start to realize and, and eventually you educate them that, hey, this is a good thing for me. And then they adopt the change, right? So um, that that's from that perspective. A weight, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the automotive industry is is plagued, if you will, by silos and certain old school ways of doing things. And a way to help move the ball forward in this change journey is to break down those silos, right? And one of the ways to help break down those silos to help collaborate, to increase collaboration is to, for example, uh, establish cross-functional teams where, where, you know, it's not this, this throw over the wall of the cubicle divider thing anymore. It becomes more you know, real-time collaboration. So even within an organization, there are so many silos, right? So those uh, those cross-functional teams are important. And then I think that whole culture of transparency, and I would use the word honesty, is really important to ensure adoption because, and again, we touched on this again, I mean, earlier as well, but when something goes wrong, people need to be able to share that and, and don't try to hide the problems, but actually work together to, you know, share the problem and then work together to fix it. So, so when you talk about what companies can do, hopefully that, that address some of those things, right? Some of the change management, the sponsorship, cross-functional teams, um, not hiding problems, you know, um, being open and transparent. I think those are things that can be, that auto companies can do to, um, to help drive this change. Doug, I, I'm curious, what role does tech play in the creation of a digital supply network? Are there even specific examples of tech that can be used to enable this goal? Yeah, I think I think uh, at half of this conversation today has been on culture and, and change and process and people and those type of things. But I think there is a, a big role that um, tech does have. I mean, I work for a tech company. If I didn't say that, it, you know, why, why am I here basically? But um, but also technology is probably the easier part sometimes versus than trying to change the culture and the people and the process capabilities. But if we look at what some of you know the technology that, that starts to come play, let, let's take, for example, cloud. What is cloud going to bring? Well, cloud, the basic element cloud that we're going to bring is virtually unlimited compute and virtually unlimited storage capabilities for you to be able to get those incredibly large amounts of data that exist. Typical manufacturer, and by the way, auto does a lot more than this. The average manufacturer right now produces about 1.5 terabytes of data per day. That's a lot of information per site, not, not across a company, but per site type of capability, per factory. Now multiply that when you look at automotive and the automotive capabilities that they have, they're probably in the five to 10 terabytes of data per day. Well, that's a lot in a year. 
That means your data center is just constantly growing and growing and growing and growing, which is a sunk cost. And many times you need to store that data for five, 10, 15, 20 years. And we've got ways that can help store that, that says what's hot data versus cold data. What if you want to do track and trace on a vehicle a recall in three years or five years, and you want to be able to find that information and do that digital thread of how that product was made? Well, doing that on premise and storing that data for that long time gets really expensive as you go forward. So cloud is going to help lower that cost structure for you. So right there, very simple way to do that. But now look at that across the supply chain where maybe you want to also now find out that information from your supplier, from a, a seatbelt manufacturer or an airbag manufacturer, considering the issues we've had over the past 12 months in a few of those industries and understanding the quality of those products coming into your site. Well, do you have that information? How do you get that information from your supplier? And if they've built that into a cloud platform, it'll be easier to get to, easier to find by being able to have sharing of that data as you move across. Then add on top of that, because now you're looking at petabytes of data. And I don't know about you, but for me, if I go past line 17 in an Excel file, I'm already lost. That's too much for my, my simple brain to take from that standpoint. But now you're looking at petabytes of data over a year across thousands of different bill of materials, across thousands of different vehicles. And to find that nugget of information, not gonna happen. So how do you use that artificial intelligence to either automatically go find that information, alert you to where that anomaly is, and maybe even give you some, here's some suggestions of what we did in the past. Um, and bringing all that together is a really the big driver I see of where technology is going to come to play. Yeah, I want to shift gears just a little bit here. Peter, I want to know your thoughts on the, the talent aspects, new ways of working to drive talent requirements and how can companies really position themselves to attract and retain the best talent? Sure, so, you know, it's interesting. Talent, in the, especially in the manufacturing world, right? Um, talent tends to be seen sometimes as an afterthought. You know, everyone's focused on the product and, and rightly so, right? The product and the process and technology and all of that, and that's also vitally important. And sometimes talent is seen as this kind of squishy or soft thing, which is like, yeah, you know, we'll figure it out, whatever. But it's interesting that talent is rising increasingly to the top of the executive agenda when it comes to change. And you see this across all industries, by the way. Uh, and, and really, because at the end of the day, talent is the ultimate enabler, right? Um, because the types of change we're talking about are, I mean, these are foundational changes, if you will. Uh, and, and you can liken it to rewiring the DNA of a company, right? So it's, you know, we all hear the word digital, the term digital transformation, but it's, what does that mean? That's not just about technology, though technology, of course, is critically important. And I too work for a tech company, as does, as does Doug. But um, really, we're talking about transforming people, process, and technology when you talk about digital transformation, right? It's not just the digital aspect of it. And really, what we want to get to is not just doing digital and giving it lip service, but really being digital, where it, it imbues everything we do as just as a matter of habit, as I said, in our DNA. So that requires a certain level of talent, a type of talent. And so companies need to be very intentional in terms of understanding what their talent needs are to get them to where they want to go. And then, you know, understanding what the gaps are with their current talent pool, and then coming up with a plan to 
um, close those gaps either by a, by probably a combination of reskilling and or hiring, right? But there's that's a very intentional process, um, and uh, uh, you know um, because the, the war for talent is really across the board. Nowadays, automotive companies, uh, you know, a Ford isn't just competing with a General Motors or a Honda or a Toyota. They're competing, honestly, with an Amazon, with, with an Apple, with, with, with any company anyway, because at the end of the day, as you've heard probably people say that, every company now is or needs to be a tech company or won't survive, right, at the end of the day. So, so yes, technology is driving a lot of this, but we can get rid of the, obviously, the, the human element is a big piece of it. But what companies, and automotive, you know, has a bit of this legacy sort of baggage, if you will, that, you know, it's seen as an old world industry, you know, rust belt, whatever term you want to use. Okay, there's many different pejorative terms that are used. When, when you think about it, though, automotive is actually a hotbed of innovation. It's one of the most technologically exciting industries today, anywhere. It's really at the forefront of innovation, right? So how can employees, employers, um, position themselves, I think is one of what you'd asked, you know, to, to attract and retain. Um, uh, I think, you know, they need to sort of transform themselves into a, employers of choice. And what does that mean? It's, it's one thing to just say that, but the way you become an employer of choice is to really, well, you know, show that you have, you really are a very exciting place to work and industry in general, but, you know, by giving people the ability to to, to have a significant impact, you know, giving them that significance as opposed to just success, right? Allowing people to have a social impact in their work because that's important to a lot of people, right? Um, allowing them to feel that whatever skills they're going to be using on the job are actually going to be accretive and will help them in their career progression, right? And then giving them an opportunity to develop their personal branding, right? So all of these come together so that you know people can feel that at the end of this you know, or through this whole process, if I work for this company it's gonna burnish my personal brand, right? And position me for my career growth as well. So I think those are some things that companies can do to, to help attract and retain the right talent uh, for the transformation. Yeah, and Peter, if I can add to that, I think one of the things that, you know, we help some companies sometimes because they're looking going, I need 13 people to do this. They have trouble hiring those new college grads because, the industry is not seen as, like you rightfully said, the cool industry to go to. I want to go to gaming or I want to go to mm -hmm. Google or something from that standpoint. Well, again, if you're, I think one of the biggest jobs right now that people are hiring for across every industry is data scientists. Mm -hmm. You know, who's the biggest, as I just said, producer of data out there? Manufacturing. Where are probably some of the coolest changes that could happen if you could unlock those insights? And changing the job description um, and looking at it, not just from a, hey, come work for the auto industry because we make cool cars, but come work for the auto industry because we are looking at these different ways of the industry and driving those areas. And sometimes it's the basics of just building the job description and you know what you're trying to recruit really will help change that. Absolutely. And, and Doug, if I may piggyback also onto what you said, that yes, this, when you talked about the amounts of data that come out of the automotive industry, and that's from the manufacturing process, but think about it with the whole mobility ecosystem, there's a, that's even, I don't know what factor you would apply, but it's massively exponential, right? So when you talk about data scientists and uh, all the data that's being generated, the whole thing about connected and autonomous driving is all about making sense of that data. It's key, without it, it doesn't happen, it, it can't happen. So, so, you know, I think 
as you said, it, it is a way to, we need to, we need to do a better job of marketing ourselves and letting people know that this really is an exciting place to work. Let, let, let's talk cybersecurity. Can, can you share your thoughts on the role of cybersecurity in digital and highly interconnected ecosystems? Why is it important and you know, how can companies protect their critical assets and IP today? And for, for AWS, security is job one. It's takes job zero. It's not even job one. Um, it is the basic fundamental of what we do and how we've built the company, both from our services or from our infrastructure to all of the plays that we have for our customers. And one of the things that you know we bring to the play, especially in the security standpoint, is thousands of people that do this on a day in and day out basis. That's their full-time job is to protect your data, protect your data in flight, protect your data while it's being stored, protect your data across that whole chain, protect that data as you're trying to share it with your trading partners, like we were talking about earlier. So how my supplier and my supplier and my OEM get that same information and make sure it is secure because that intellectual property is the key of our brand as we move forward. And we stand behind it. You know, the amount of certifications that we have are the highest levels of certification. And any cloud provider is going to have more certification and more people working day in and day out than you, I, the customer out there. And, and just that's not their day job. Our workers that only look after security, that is their day job. So they have to try and understand and stay ahead of that curve and ahead of that hacker or white hacker or black hack, black hack hacker, however you want to put it from that standpoint. And making sure that our role is to make sure that those assets and that digital asset is protected 100% of the time. Question for both of you. What are the top, say, three things you would want to leave listeners with in terms of how to get started on this resilience journey? I'll give you actually four, if that's okay, because um, I always seek to over-deliver, right? <laughs> but, uh, but really, very quickly, without dwelling on them too much, I would say the following, right? One is uh, to drive a culture of collaboration and trust and transparency. And we've talked about all the challenges when it comes to culture change, et cetera, so uh, a few minutes ago, but, but that culture change, driving that culture uh, towards collaboration and, and um, um, transparency will help to create the resilient supply chain that we're talking about. Secondly, um, I think strong risk management is critical. So implementing strong risk management policies and practices, governance, if you will, and uh, scenario planning, these are critical. Uh, this, this is critical to, uh, to sort of, you know, making sure that we don't get as caught as unawares perhaps as we were in the, in the last 12 months. Uh, thirdly, of course, technology plays a key role, right? So, and again, I'm going to throw out some acronyms or words here, which without dwelling on them, but, you know, but in terms of technologies, right? Uh, artificial intelligence, AI, machine learning are key, right? Or using analytics, uh, of course, uh, big data and data quality and data governance all around data, right? So that's a big piece of it. And then how do you make sense of the data through the analytics, right? And then uh, and then how do you automate uh, aspects of your supply chain through AI and ML? So those are things. Uh, and then one of the other things that I think is important from a technology perspective, I alluded to this earlier, is this concept of a multi-enterprise platform, collaboration platforms, right? There's a few out there. Infor has one called Nexus, for example. But these platforms allow companies to collaborate, stakeholders to collaborate in real time. So that's another aspect of 
tech, and then of course, strong cybersecurity as Doug was uh, talking about as well. And then the fourth one I would leave you with is that the, the talent aspect, we definitely don't want to forget about the talent aspect, making sure we align the talent needs to uh, our goals and then making sure that we um, do some of the things that we talked about to attract and retain the best talent. So those are the four that I would leave you with. So while you have four, I'm gonna try and stick it to three. So let me, let me just kind of build those three for you. Uh, to me, I think that one of the first basics is learn from others. Just be open. You know, it might not be your industry. And in fact, you might be able to learn more from another industry very quickly about what's been happening out there because they've done it, they fixed it, they solved it, or they're still going through the same pain. Don't, re don't repeat the same pain. If somebody's already gone through it, learn from some of those best practices. Um, that then relates into don't go alone, right? So the first one is be open, explore, learn, have that from that standpoint. Second is don't go alone. There's companies out there that can help with you. Yes, some of it costs money. Other times it does just have a good aspect that are things already exist out there. What are those and where do they come from and how can we help bring those to bear? And then the third is build a vision. So what is your vision of what your supply chain is going to look like in three to five years? And, and the reason is, uh, you know, you need a North Star to go to. You need some, that, that's where my destination is. Now you might take 14 different routes. You might take left turns and right turns and forward and take three steps back and whatnot from that standpoint. But if you don't have that vision, all you're going to be doing is meandering. So build the vision and then start down that journey. This is a journey. Um, you know, Amazon and AWS, we're kind of, uh, in, you know, we, we've got an advantage here. We're only 25 years old. We don't have 150 years of legacy of building and changing and driving these things. We built from digital day one. So learning from what is digital day one and bringing that into what your vision is going to be, but understanding that it might be a three to a five year journey to become that digital and that resilient capability as you move forward. Fantastic. Bill, this has been extremely educational for me. Thank you so much. Peter from Infor, Doug with AWS, a great discussion. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you. To learn more, visit infort.com slash automotive and also aws.amazon.com slash manufacturing. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of CDM Media's Solution Spotlight.